put on the full armor of God, the Apostle Paul says, this is no trivial outfit. This is the real deal, the full armor of God. It's an itemized list to defend yourself in battle that we read here. People who want to live with Jesus in our world, Paul says, will need all of this. We'll need a thick belt of leather around our waist, wide and long, that will cinch up our tunic and where we can hang our sword. We'll need a, a breastplate, the front and the back, not just the front, both sides covered so that the vital organs are protected. We'll need a shield, not the tiny one, the big oblong kind that protects the whole torso. This is the kind that's made of pressed layers of pressed wood and fabric. It's perfect for when those flaming arrows have been dipped in pitch and caught on fire when they come towards you. You need that kind of a shield. Put on the boots, maybe the ones like the Roman army wears, made of leather with the straps all the way up the calves. The toes are open, but the sole of the boot is studded. It's good for long marches. And put on a helmet. It's probably made of iron or bronze and maybe lined with some felt or some sponge material. And get yourself a sword only thing on the list of weapons that can be used for offense or defense. The Apostle Paul is not joking. In this passage, it's this full, fantastic, and terrifying description. There is danger, and the Apostle Paul sees it, the description that he's given us today. I don't know why he reached for this metaphor, by the way. Is it because he used to wear this kind of armor uh, himself? years before, working for the Roman army when he round up Christians and put them to death? Is it because a, a soldier actually put him in chains and is maybe standing guard? It's, it's the metaphor Paul reaches for warriors and battles. We don't know exactly why. But what he's describing is dominant, dangerous for forces from verse 12 again. We aren't fighting against human enemies but against rulers and authorities and forces of cosmic darkness and spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. It's a full and frightening description, dominant, destructive forces. When Paul counsels the disciples of Jesus how to move in around, around in the world, this is the metaphor he reaches for. Protect yourself because forces look like real things in the world. Listen, Jesus taught the disciples, you're going to come across demonic forces, so you should know how to cast out demons. There's a story like this in Acts chapter 19. Paul is aware of it. It happens in Ephesus where Paul's currently chained up. Uh, well, where the letter he's writing to the Ephesians, it's in that city where this scene happens. Some Jews have heard that the people of Jesus cast out demons, so they're walking through the city, Acts chapter 19. They decide to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. So they say to a person who's supposedly demon-possessed, we command you in the name of Jesus to come out of this person, and then the craziest thing happens. Acts 19 says the demon talks back. The evil spirit replies, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, and who are you? This is a comical scene. The demon says to these people pretending to know Jesus, who in the world are you? The evil spirit jumps on them and, and overpowers them with all this force. They ran out of the city naked and wounded. It's like a comic strip gone bad. 
demon stands up and says, who are you pretending to know Jesus? The storyteller says that in Ephesus, they never forgot the day the demon stood up and whipped these people silly and stripped them of their clothes and chased them out of town. It's the story they all talked about. Some of you grew up in spaces and places where the deacons and the elders and the pastors were called out to cast out demons regularly. I know, I've heard you tell stories. We don't know exactly about the, the hierarchy of these evil powers in the universe. We know a couple of things, that they're powerful, and they use their power for evil, not for good. Power is simply power until we see how it's used. These forces use their power for destruction. We know that about them. We know that they're sly and cunning and clever. We know that about these forces. We know a few things about them, but we don't know exactly where they're located. Some people think these are the forces that are located inside of people. And I'm going to tell you right now that this metaphor was not real useful for me growing up as a kid in the church. I grew up in a class for children like many of you, a Sabbath school class, where they dressed us in the full armor of God and we walked around the room chanting a song about wars and battles. And that was not a real helpful metaphor for me personally. Some of you come from countries and spaces where, it, I mean, that's about all we did with that. In church, we never really talked about casting out demons. It never went really further than that. The first time I was asked to cast out a demon several years ago, I found myself going to my office and standing in front of my bookshelf and scanning the titles, and I realized I have not one useful book on how to cast out a demon. I can give you a Bible study, I can teach you a little Greek and Hebrew, I can marry you, bury you, baptize you, dedicate your baby, make you a great apple pie. <laughs> call me for that, but don't call me for demon possession. When Paul decides to talk about what the disciples of Jesus will need, he reaches for warriors and battle and armor that will protect them because he knows they will hear this story. They will see it. But here's what's crazy about this text to me. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to, look at Ephesians 6 verse 15 again, so that you will be able to walk in peace. Am I the only one that finds this the, I almost said stupid, <laughs> craziest paradox? It's the craziest paradox. Gear yourself up because there's going to be, a, you'll need to walk in peace. Lots of people have used ink on this passage as over the centuries in the Christian tradition. Let me, uh, it's just 11 verses, by the way, the armor of God. Here's a Puritan pastor from 1655, the Puritans who came from, from England to this country, right? Puritan pastor, I want to just, before you read the screen, just hear this. The title of the book is The Christian in Complete Armor. That's the title of the book. This is the subtitle. The subtitle, The Saints' War Against the Devil, wherein a discovery is made of the grand enemy of God and his people and his policies, his power, the seat of his empire, wickedness, chief design he hath against the saints, a magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for the battle, helped on with his armor, taught the use of the weapons, together with the happy issue of the whole war. That's the subtitle. Goes on to be uh, three volumes 261 chapters, 1,400 pages on 11 verses, friends. 
It's quite Puritan, a little pretentious. There are some people who have cared deeply about these 11 verses. There are some people even up to today because it seems like in all ages there have been people who feel little, little people who feel like they're being managed by demonic, historic forces over the ages. And, if we, and this is what inspires great storytelling, by the way. Tomorrow night on Hollywood and Highland when the Oscars are celebrated and sort of in our neighborhood, the eight films nominated for best film of 2018, of the eight films, two of them feature armors and warriors. It's the stuff stories are made of. One of those films on the left, Black Panther, is the highest domestic gross earning film for Marvel. We kind of hope it wins something. I mean, it's verses like this that imagine the warriors of Wakanda. Because people through all ages have felt they're, they're at the mercy of some kind of demonstrative, destructive force, and we can't control it. So four times the Apostle Paul says to take a stand, to make a stand, to stand our ground, to stand still. Over and over again, he reminds us, stand, stand, stands, Christian. Stand, stand, stands, Christian. No wobbly Christians allowed. Paul's very convinced of this thing. So you will be ready to spread the good news of peace. Am I the only one who thinks it's crazy that we need a full armor of protection so that we can walk in peace? Am I the only one that thinks it's crazy? Ephesians chapter 2 told us the summary of the whole story. For by grace you have been saved, not of your own doing. It's all God's work. You are all God's craftsmanship, all God's handiwork. So therefore, chapter 4, get on with it in patience, gentleness, with forbearance, and with love. Make sure everyone knows no one is far off, no one is special and close and favored. There's no partitions, no divisions. All people belong to God. This is the great work of the church. The church is the great experiment of God's peace on earth. And put on your armor. Am I the only one who thinks this crazy? Tell me, church, this morning, why isn't it easier for Christians to walk in peace? We are the ones who know the story. We are the ones who trust this God of grace and goodness. Why isn't it easier for us to take our hostilities and turn them into hospitalities? Why is it so difficult? We know, we have it right here. I've known, I was born one Sabbath and in church the next Sabbath and I've hardly missed one in between. Come on, we know the story. We're on vacation last Sabbath. So uh, we pull into a parking lot and then all the tourists want to be in the same parking lot. It's not a very big parking lot. We're on the island of Maui. It was beautiful, seven days by the way. Rain and snow, just like home. We got snowed out of Haleakala. Can you believe that? We're in a parking lot trying to get into the beach. It's not a very large parking lot. One of the cars has decided they'll let their passenger out and she's going to stand guard in the middle of a parking spot. And so she does. And the rest of us begin to creep around the parking lot. Right, Kirby? I'm telling the truth. Five of us in the car, two of us begin to get a little hot. 
five of us in the car, two of us grew in their hostility. This is just ridiculous. We're in a parking lot. There's one really out of her mind tourist holding her parking spot, whatever. It's such a small thing in the grand picture of life, right? But she will not move and she won't let us buy and a parking spot's coming just up there and if she would get out of the way and we could do it and if she, and there's yelling going on in my car and there's yelling going on in the parking lot. <laughs> I finally get out of the car and I come to the lady and say, if you could just tell your husband who's behind us to back up a little bit, we could pull forward and take that spot that's up there, let that car out and we could all get what we seem to want here. Oh, fine, you have to have it your way. <laughs> I was the calm one in the car. I mean, this ended with flipping off and all the things, friends. And we're all on vacation. The Apostle Paul is talking about all the interactions in life, all the relationships. If you heard Devo's sermon last week, all of our relationships are influenced in our everyday interactions, all the way to the larger issues we still are wrestling and we can't figure out the color of our skin and the way our bodies are made and how we feel out of shape in our own bodies and in our own minds and warring with other nations and the way we treat our world and the, the grass that grows under our feet. All of this is influence. For by grace you have been saved. Now get on with peace. Why isn't it easier for those of us who know the story? This is why we call Dr. Leslie Martin. Come on up. Leslie, come on up. We're going to welcome you. <laughs> Leslie is in our psychology department across the street. We've loved you for years. You've helped us before a couple of times. Your specialty is in longevity, uh, health, behavioral health and longevity. So we called on her because those skill sets apply to us today. We need them. Uh, first of all, I want to tell us something about yourself that we don't know. I feel like people know everything about me. I'm, I, I love doing physical challenges. So, and I, I can't run anymore. So this year I'm swimming 201.9 miles for 2019. I'm not swimming 2019 miles. That was a bit much, but yeah. 2100 miles. No, 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 201. Well, uh, that's 0.9. still a lot for me. It's a very dull, I'm regretting it already. <laughs> so that's a goal for 2019. You live with a dog named Hannah. Look at the picture of I her do. dog here. You happen to have a big heart. There she is, yes. She's very sweet. She is very sweet. So Leslie, we have a problem. Why is this not easier for Christians? Why is this turning hostilities into hospitality such a struggle? You know, it's a really good question and I think there's two reasons. One is who we are as individuals. I mean, we, everyone in here right now, we are not who we are from day one. We did not come this way. So who we are right now has been created and shaped over years and for many of us, decades. And these are patterns that are put in place. We weren't born with a personality. We were born with a temperament. That's the, the biological underpinnings and the natural reactivity. But then that interacts with our environment to create ultimately who we are. So we have patterns and we have past experiences. And all of those come together and it's, 
you don't undo those in a few weeks or months or even years. So that's the first reason. That's not helpful. <laughs> okay, let me give you a second reason. <laughs> give me a second reason. All right, she just told us we're really complicated people. So I cannot stand in the parking lot and tell, it wasn't me in the car who was angry, it was somebody uh -huh. else. And I cannot tell the somebody else in my car is de-escalate and get over it because you're telling me all sorts of years of patterning and experiences, et cetera, et cetera, have shaped her or him, depending. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's really true. And so I don't want to negate or, or minimize who we are as people. But the other reason that I think this is so hard is who we are as a species. We, we live in a very complex environment. So we are complex, but our world is complex. We are constantly bombarded with so many different stimuli. If we are to survive and thrive, we can't possibly pay attention to every single thing. So we are designed to tune things out, to pay attention to what is the most important or what seems to be the most important, to the currently changing, and to kind of habituate to stuff that we encounter all the time. We filter in ways that make the world consistent with our beliefs and views. And so doing all of this means that even though we might know something that we want to do, it might be really hard to actually put that into place. In psychology, we use the term cognitive misers. And we say that we, you know, in our effort to be efficient, we really try to minimize the mental workload. And we use different tools to do this. We use something called heuristics, basically like shortcuts to get through life. And, and this serves us well. Most of the time it does help us or we wouldn't do it. But because these heuristics and these shortcuts are are exactly that, they're shortcuts, they're simplifications. And so they can sometimes steer us really wrong. And then we, in an effort to maintain some sense of stability and some sense of cohesiveness in the world, we filter the world using those shortcuts and using other cognitive processes and it makes it feel okay. I mean, in some way we're helping ourselves we absolutely are. Navigating it's and survive. It's a bad thing no. entirely, but it's a complex thing. And your filtering will look different than my filtering and someone else's filtering. Absolutely. And some of that is because, in fact, a large majority of that is because of past experiences and how we've learned to do it. Our brains are designed to adopt these processes, but exactly what that looks like from person to person will be quite different. Okay. Show us what this looks like. Okay. So I brought a few examples. Um, one, one thing that we know is, oh, and I'm sorry, we, I should have asked you to, okay, yeah, so, so let me ask you a couple of questions. I just want, you don't need to have a show of hands or anything, but I just want you to think about which of the following do you think is more dangerous? So if we could, yeah. Good. So, which is a more dangerous occupation, policing or logging? Sit with that for a moment. <laughs> I'm hearing people say logging. Don't share the answers. <laughs> We're not great students. <laughs> okay, it's, it's not a teaching day. Be, be easy with us. <laughs> okay, let's do a second one. Um, which is more likely uh, to kill you, a dog or furniture? Okay, so you don't have to answer out loud. I'm hoping that particularly on that second one, maybe you thought a dog. Not because I'm trying to disparage dogs, because I'm a dog lover, but it seems more likely that a dog would kill you than furniture. 
Um, I heard people saying logging, so you guys were a little too good on that. Um, we see a lot more in the news, though, about the dangerousness of a policing lifestyle rather than the logging lifestyle. But in fact, logging is more dangerous. And in fact, humans on average are about 30 times more likely to be killed by furniture, usually falling off of it um, in their own homes than they are to be killed by a dog. Falling off of it? Yeah, usually falling off. Sometimes it falls on you, but usually you're falling off oh of my. it. So be careful, folks. Home is dangerous. <laughs> But the point is that when we make these judgments, we're using what's called the availability heuristic or the availability shortcut. So when we judge probabilities, when we make decisions, we think about what comes most easily to mind, what is most readily available as we try to call up examples and do this quick mental calculation. Okay. And we tend to rely on what, what pops into our minds. And depending what we've experienced, what we've seen on the news, what we've heard, um, we might misrepresent the reality of risks, benefits, and so on. Okay, good, that's helpful. Give us another example. A second heuristic that I just wanna share, and I, I know that this church is doing a lot of work with housing and homelessness. So I wanna ask you to just think for a moment about a homeless person, maybe the last homeless person that you encountered, or maybe a homeless person that you see regularly, and think about what is that person like? What, are, what do they look like? What are their characteristics, qualities? So you kind of have a mental picture of what it means to be homeless. I would be willing to bet that for some of you in here, you have regularly encountered another homeless person that is not who you're thinking of because you don't even know that person is homeless. So this is an example of the representativeness heuristic. When I ask you to think about the homeless person, you think of someone who seems representative of the class, someone who has the earmarks of what in your mind is a homeless person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is also an example, this heuristic, of how we sort of filter things other pieces of information that are associated with another homeless person that we don't even recognize as homeless don't make it into our consciousness to, to start to shift our picture of homelessness. We recognize the person who maybe looks disheveled, who's maybe pushing a shopping cart, who fits the mold. And when we see that person, that reinforces the idea of, oh, that's what homelessness is. When we see the person who doesn't look like that, we don't shift our view, our stereotype, our mental picture, okay. because we don't even recognize that, that that should happen. So that's one way that, that filtering happens and that our, our biases, our misconceptions sometimes can be perpetuated and that we can continue on a course of action or way of viewing the world that is maybe not as accurate as it should be. Okay, good, keep going with... So, <laughs> Sorry, I brought a ton of examples. No, the, the examples help us. Okay, so another... We're not another, sitting on our furniture when we go home, by the way. I know, I'm going to be really careful when I get off Scared of this us. when we're done here. <laughs> so another, another way that we filter is by paying attention to things that seem to be happening. And, and that's usually where the action is and where maybe we need to focus attention. We're not very good at noticing change when it's slow change. So if we could shift to a first picture, I want you to take a look at this picture and it's gonna sit there for a moment and I want you to see if you can see what disappears.
Okay, so I am familiar with this and I supplied it and I have to say I know what's supposed to disappear and it's not disappearing. <laughs> That's great. They're pointing. Oh, sorry. I, so I have a different screen. My bad. It did disappear. Okay, what disappeared? Anyone identify anything? The A student was in the back. I thought I heard a... Okay, I can't hear. Let's have a flashing so everyone can see it and we'll see if you, if you actually noted what disappeared. Okay. Okay, so some of you saw that. Maybe some of you didn't. It disappeared. Let's do one more. Now that you fully get what the task is, let's look at one more picture and see if, in fact, you can identify the, the change in the picture over time slowly. Okay, how many of you think you saw it? Okay, probably 15% maybe? Let's flash that one and, and show, yeah. <laughs> so even when you know something's gonna be disappearing, I need to look for it, I'm gonna find it, it's really hard to do that because it's happening so slowly and so subtly and we're scanning and we're looking and we're paying attention to maybe, I mean, you'll notice in both of those examples, it was kind of something on the periphery. It wasn't that interesting. It wasn't the main focal point. It wasn't the boat. It wasn't the metal. So that's a way that we tend to ignore potentially important information that, that could change us, change our perceptions, change our understanding if we paid better attention. The last example, um, and this example has some folks that you, some of you will know, um, but it's a, a short video. So we, we look for things that we think will make sense. We can try to be really sharp and catch a trick. This is how magic works. So a short video clip that I'm gonna show you is a magic trick. And at the end, there will be an explanation that will kind of help you to understand um, what we're talking about in this last type of filtering. Okay, so. good. The idea is simple. We have a regular blue-black deck of cards. I'm going to spread the cards out in front of Kayla. And would you please, Kayla, choose one card by pushing it towards the camera? I think I'm going to choose this one right here. Very nice. See, Kayla could have chosen any card from the deck, but she didn't. She chose the card that is now facing down on the table. Kayla, would you please show the camera and the audience what card it is you chose? I chose the Six of Diamonds. Six of Diamonds, very nice. We're going to take the cards here, open them up, we'll take, we're going to take your card, place it somewhere in the middle, and lose it. I'm going to do a little ripple, snap, and shake. As we spread the cards out, we'll see that your card here in the middle is the Six of Diamonds and does have a blue bag. However, what's more surprising is the rest of the cards have changed colors to red bags. And that is the color changing card trick.
Hi, I'm Chris, this is my sister Kayla, and we will be performing the color changing card trick. The idea is simple. We have a regular blue black deck of cards. I'm going to spread the cards out in front of Kayla. And would you please, Kayla, choose one card by pushing it toward the camera? I think I'm going to from the deck, but she didn't. She chose the card that is now facing down on the table. Kayla, would you please show the camera and the audience what card you did she chose? I chose the Six of Diamonds. Six of Diamonds, very nice. We're going to take the cards here, open them up, so we're going to take your card, place it somewhere in the middle, and lose it. I'm going to do a little ripple, snap, and shake it. As we spread the cards out, See that your card here in the middle is the six diamonds and does have a blue bag. However, what's most surprising is the rest of the cards have changed colors to red bags. And that is the color changing card trick. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> That's so good. So so it's an illustration of how we pay attention to what we think matters. We do actions that we think are relevant, but a lot of times just as humans, and I mean, there's no fault in it, we all do it, but we ignore things. We don't always see the whole picture, and, and it's hard to break out of that. All of these are contributing towards the biases you talk about. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So... I mean, I just feel like going home and eating tacos because I, like, what can you do? That's also very good to do. That's a good to do. <laughs> what in the world can you do? Like, when we begin to understand the layers of complexity here and things that I'm not even aware are happening in my mind and my actions, do I have to raise my awareness? Do I just start changing my actions? How, how what? So you mentioned my research is in like health and longevity and, and we, we all know there are many things that we could and should do for our health and I'm willing to bet that a lot of us have at least a few things that we are well informed about but we don't do. Why is that? The best practices recommendation in health, and I would argue it's really a good general recommendation, is to not do, try to do everything at once. We are who we are shaped over time, and we have these very natural human tendencies. So to try to just say, oh, well, I understand now, I, I recognize that I should be different, I'm going to be different, that's kind of setting us up for failure because that's a lot of stuff to change. That's a lot of pieces moving and, and it's hard to do that all at once. So baby steps is one thing that we can do. I mean, be easy on yourself. For people who genuinely want to make a change, taking a step that is a manageable step where you can succeed, that, that success fosters self-efficacy, a sense that you can do it, it makes you feel good and want to do more. So don't try to do it all at once. Pick something that's right for who you are and where you are and do that one thing and make that a habit and make that part of, of your new you. And then when you've done that, pick something else, another baby step. Mm -hmm. We're gonna constantly be a work in progress. We're never gonna be perfect on this earth, but we can work toward it. And the baby steps is, is a really good way to do it. A second thing, I think, gets to the idea of, of changing perspective. And there's a lot of research that shows that when you get to know people, when you encounter people, you have that exposure, 
you get to know them as nice people who might have some annoying characteristics, who might, you know, check some of your boxes, but you can see the underlying good. So the more we can put ourselves in situations where we can interact with different kinds of people, where we can encounter different situations and be open to those, that's also really gonna help. So I'll give you my example. I'm really, um, I get irritated by judgmental people. And you are telling me that I should go have more experiences with judgmental people. Yes, but not too many. You know, it's got to be some, some balance. But yes, get to know them as people. For, for most people that are judgmental or do whatever else it is that, that bothers us, there's probably some other things that they do and, and things that they would say that we would resonate with and that we would like. Um, my parents and I do not agree on everything, but I know them. And so I love them and I see them. I know that they're good people. And yeah, they've got some quirks, but I don't discount them because of that. If I didn't know them, maybe I would. So we've got to get to know people. We've got to see that good in them and it won't happen instantly. Putting ourselves in new situations, seeing new perspectives and baby steps, counting the small successes as victories and then choosing something else. This is your counsel. Yeah. It really is. And I think that even though that's not going to make a dr dramatic change, it's not going to fix everything instantly, the peace of mind that I think you get and that sense of, of wellness, when your behaviors are consistent with your values and that you're doing something active to become who you want to become, I think until we make those big changes, those little bits are really important for, for health and well-being. I'm going to hang on to that. When your internal and external are consistent, yeah. a greater level of well-being exists. Yeah, and I think that's maybe how we walk in peace. That's how we walk in peace. Thank you, Leslie. Can you thank Dr. Martin? She's telling us to put in ourselves in positions where we gain new perspectives and, and be open to what these new perspectives want to show us and teach us, not to control them, but to let them influence us. That poverty simulation, simulation that starts at 1.30 today is precisely that, where we take the role of a person in poverty, we do role playing, and we find ourselves confronted with entirely new set of uh, chaos in our lives, and it, and, and it gives us an open and changing perspective. I, I want to suggest that what the church actually is, the church will be what the church is to be when the church's everyday choices align with the gospel. That is to say, a church is not necessarily about the practices and the protocol, the protocols and the procedures and the manuals and the structure. We need some of that. But when the church aligns its actions and choices with the gospel, when the internal gospel and the external gospel match, greater well-being exists. We can't preach the good news and be the bad news. So it turns out when we look for healthy, thriving churches, it's where we see churches that are making choices, external, difficult choices. These are not easy choices. And they feel dangerous sometimes because we have fears and implicit biases and things we've not even yet unpacked we need our psychologists to help us with. And still, when the church finds itself doing this, the church is the grand experiment of peace God has in mind. 
So this uh, researcher, uh, Dorothy Butler Bass, has caught my attention a few years ago with her book. She said, I got tired of the rhetoric that churches are dying and Christianity is dying in America and that in the 80s and 90s, by the end of the 90s, the prediction is the only churches that will exist will be the large mega churches. So she went on an experience visiting churches. She isolated 50 churches, most of them were small, about 300 members. The largest church she, she focused on was 2,500 members, about our size. Most of them were small. She, she calls this actually Christianity for the rest of us because it turns out there's a whole bunch of Christians who still show up. There's a bunch of us who still find value in gathering, in belonging, in doing life together, in worshiping and praying and singing. Turns out when she evaluated these churches, Christianity for the rest of us, the rest of us who haven't gone away yet, it's very simple. They preach the gospel and the very second identifying feature, they practice hospitality. Christianity for the rest of us is thriving in America, she says in her book. Preach the gospel, pay attention to, to uh, hospitality, attend to worship in the spirit and our spiritual lives, and move around the world as if the gospel is really true. I wanna leave you with a thought from this reverend, Nancy Hall. She's from Boston. She says, you know, the angels in scripture always greet us with fear not. No wonder the first greeting in the Bible the angels give to the humans is do not be afraid. Yet forgive me for daring to coach the angels. I wonder if it wouldn't be better to say courage, be brave. After all, a certain amount of fear is warranted. Because we don't control our world and because bad things actually do happen in our world, to be walking in God's peace means we might need to wake up every day and say, courage, be brave. I know we're a little long, but I want to tell you how this played out in the life of my father, and we'll close. If you've heard this story before, enjoy it again. This is about my father who when I decided to become a pastor, opened his Bible and found the verse that said, a woman shall not teach a man. Implicit and explicit biases. So before I studied, came to study at La Sierra University, I went home to visit my father and I was a 31-year-old woman with children of our own. And in the driveway, I said to my father, something's going to start in a week and in, I felt I needed to come and tell you I'm going to study religion and theology and dad, am I still going to be welcome in this home? Because I grew up in the home and I knew what happened in that home. I knew after church if it was a day when a woman was up front, an elder was praying or doing something, all through lunch my father would complain about that woman, that woman, get that woman off the platform. I knew because I grew up in the home, Dad, is it going to be okay? I'm coming to study religion and theology. We're standing in the middle of the driveway. I know exactly where we were standing. And when I asked my father this question, he could not give me an answer. He shrugged his shoulders and walked away. That's how the conversation ended. I came to study. I wish... I had access to the communication that began to flow back and forth between the two of us. He took to his email 
and he began writing me letters back and forth, back and forth. I don't really remember so much about what he said. It was just clear to me he was chewing on something. And then one day I was invited to speak somewhere and my dad phoned and said, I'm going to come and listen to you preach. And I said, are you sure? You're going to stand outside or inside? And then the email exchange would go back and forth and the months would go by and more education would go by. And then one day I'm invited to speak another place in Bend, Oregon. I will never forget a huge gym, hundreds of women. My father called and said, I'm going to come with you to Bend. I said, Dad, it's for women. <laughs> it's okay, I'll be quiet, I'll sit in the back. I walk into my venue that Sabbath morning and my father is in the front row and he's got CNN-sized cables taped all across the front and his camcorders and equipment are all across the front of the... Like, Dad, you can't do this. This is not our event. I'll be really quiet, I'll be really quiet. <laughs> and the email communication kept going back and forth, friends, back and forth and back and forth. Many of you know that my father suffered from Lewy body dementia. It's one of those neurodegenerative diseases. We've buried a couple of people in the last month or two who also suffer from these neurodegenerative diseases. And as time went on and my dad would get irritated by noises and changes in sound and could no longer remember the names of our children, all of the things, he still recognized us. One day we walked in, he didn't recognize me. He couldn't say my name, but he, he pointed at me and said, aren't you the pastor? Before we got to that place in our experience, there was one conversation where I said to him, what in the world has happened to you? You have become my greatest fan. And he said, I don't know how and I can't tell you exactly why. And I don't understand what's happening, but I know the Spirit is doing something. And so I'm gonna let that happen. Now you can insert any challenge into this story, friends. What this means is small baby steps allowing the Spirit to be the Spirit. Small baby steps allowing God to shift us and move us and to align us so that the gospel internally and the gospel externally in our choices and in our actions align. And then there is peace in God's church. It is not actually possible to split the church, no more possible than it is to split the Godhead, by the way. There is one God, one Lord, one Savior, one church, one body. We are all it. May there be peace in God's church. If you're interested in this, we ask you today, this is the ask, take some baby steps. Look along the walls of the sanctuary before you go home. We are watching you, do not leave. <laughs> the, line, the walls of the church are lined with options for all of us to roll up our sleeves and take baby steps, church. The very first one is potluck, Ricky. Ricky, who offered to lead our potluck, do you know her membership is not even yet at this church? And she offered to lead us in feeding each other once a month. That's what the stack of uh, 
pans are over here, and there's a couple of cookbooks. If you're afraid to cook for potluck, guess what? The first four people, we got a book for you. The book is called 13 by 9, The Pan That Can. <laughs> take a book, take a pan. Take a book, take a couple of pans, right, Pastor Ron? Because uh, this is how we make potluck happen month by month by month. Come to the poverty simulation. Sign up for something on the walls. Put yourself in a new experience, friends, and watch God create peace in our church, peace in our neighborhood. Amen.